Oh God, what does it mean to worship you in the beauty of holiness? How could something that is so utterly foreign to us be beautiful? But maybe that's it. Maybe after six days of battling our, our guilt, maybe we come into this place and confronted with your utter purity and your transparent holiness, something wells up inside of us that longs to have that for ourselves. We can't do it ourselves, which is why we've come. We've come to worship you in the beauty of your holiness with the hope that what is yours might become ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. With that hope in mind, we do sing to you, Holy, 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 for truly you are worthy. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Today's an anniversary. I don't know if you caught that as you awakened. 486 years ago today. The doors to the University Castle Church were thrown wide to the public for what promised to be one of the most breathtaking displays of sacred relics anywhere in the land. November 1, All Saints Day, 1517, in the little German village of Wittenberg, Saxony. Why would they line up this morning for a pave purview? Because it was at a rather handsome price that you were allowed to come in. But why would they line up? What were they going to see? On display today will be a single thorn from Jesus' crown of thorns. On display today will be a piece of baby Jesus' manger. For all the world to see. Some fragments from, actually from his diapers. On display today, a portion of the wise men's gold. A part of the very rock from which Jesus ascended. Also on display today, a venerated lock of Mother Mary's hair. Why would people pay to view these relics? I'll tell you why. Because you have been promised, if you see them, you have been promised a plenary indulgence of two million years cut off of your time in purgatory. And who wouldn't want to have two million years cut off of that time? Which is why when the doors opened to the university church 486 years ago today, in mass they came. Which is also why, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, 486 years ago yesterday, that would be October 31, called Hallowed Eve, because it's the evening before All Saints Day. 486 years ago yesterday, a young 33-year-old Augustinian monk named Martin Luther came striding out of the black cloister where he resided through the strewn autumn leaves, making his way to the University Boulevard, uh, Bulletin Board rather. I'm used to University Boulevard here. Making his way to the University Bulletin Board, which turns out 
front doors of the university church. Clutched in his hands what he will nail up to that bulletin board, 95 theses. 95 challenges to a fallen system and a failing church. 95 debate points to challenge the notion that human merit or payment could ever do what Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross alone can do, that is, save us. 486 years ago, this autumn day, a spark was kindled that ignited the wild, countercultural fire we still remember as the Protestant Reformation. Here's the question. Okay. So whatever happened to that Reformation? Anybody seen the Reformation around these days? Come on, where is it? Martin Luther, who, by the way, suffered bouts of deep depression. His biographer, Roland Bayton, notes that it was in the year of his deepest depression, proof enough that God can take some, our weakest moment and brings, bring truly that which is glorious out of our weakness. It was in the year of his deepest depression that he composed what has become known as the Battle Hymn of the Reformation. Oh God, 486 years later, we needed to hear that, that God's truth abideth still. And that your kingdom is forever and ever. Holy Father, what you began on that autumn day, continue this day of autumn in our midst for the glory of the Lord of Martin Luther. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Be seated, please. Whatever happened to that Reformation? Hmm? Seen it? Around? Spotted it? Countercultural. Countercultural. Who is countercultural anymore? An international student came up to me after prayer meeting one night. And he observed to me, you know, Pastor, he said, you think about it. Many of the great revivals in the history of Christianity were actually sparked on university campuses among the young. John Huss, University of Prague. Martin Luther, University of Wittenberg. John and Charles Wesley, Oxford University. I got to thinking, you know what? That international student is absolutely right. God has often chosen the young to be His strategic plan to ignite reformation and revolution within the church of Jesus Christ. So what about the young today? At Andrews University, I had the privilege for an hour and a half Wednesday night to go door to door in Meyer Hall with my friend Sean Brace, R.A. Door to door, what about these young? Young men. What about the young women? I'm not going to go door to door in Lamson, but they're there. What about the young women? This countercultural reformation. If these dusty words are true, apparently, it is to continue from Luther through today until the very end of time.
I want you to take a look at these words. Great controversy, that apocalyptic classic. The Reformation did not, as many suppose, end with Luther. It is to be continued to the close of this world's history. Luther had a great work to do in reflecting to others the light which God had permitted to shine upon him. Yet, he did not receive all the light which was to be given to the world. From that time to this, new light has been continually shining upon the Scriptures and new truths have been constantly unfolding." End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, it is precisely because... The Reformation is to go on until the end of world's, this world's history that God raises up a John the Baptist generation. That's why. And you are being called, by the way, whether you're 18 or 80, you and I are being called to be a part of that Reformation, that John the Baptist generation, a counter-cultural kingdom. You're being called to join it. God's kingdom at the end of time. Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of St. Mark. We've been to Luke. Now we're going to Mark. John the Baptist generation. This would be part three. Only five parts to this little mini-series within the series. This is part three. Those of you watching on television, if you missed parts one and two, please go to our website. You'll see it at the end of the telecast. You go to the website and you'll have all these teachings. Go to the Gospel of St. Mark, please. That punchy little drama called the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter one. Pick it up right at the beginning. Mark 1. I'll be in the New International Version. Whatever Bible you brought along, that's great. Mark chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. By the way, it's Malachi. Then Isaiah. But Mark leaves Malachi out. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. Here come the words of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now comes Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so, because you know what? When God promises a generation, when God promises a movement... Right on time, it's going to come, ready or not. And so, according to the ancient prophecy, he came right on time. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole, verse 5, Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more. More powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Countercultural John shows up on the stage of national consciousness, and the crowds come and they gawk. And no wonder. Take a look at this countercultural John, clothing out of sync and fashion with his own culture. A diet way out of the norm to boot. And a countercultural radical message. Repent, repent, for we're in the judgment now. And the Messiah is coming. Quick, get ready for him. Countercultural indeed. The countercultural John the Baptist generation. Would that be you?
Would that be I? Lest we are too hard on John because you don't like his clothing and you hate his diet. Lest we are too hard on him. Let us be reminded that this this radical stuff did not originate with John. In fact, once upon a time, there was a very counter-cultural prophet named Elijah who liked John. Actually, it's the other way around. John was like Elijah so much so that people kept coming up to John and saying, Hey, are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Promise. Once upon a time, there was a countercultural prophet named Elijah who was a countercultural radical who after three and a half years of devastating drought and fire, that nation has been brought to its knees after three and a half years of that. The California fires were, what, just a few weeks, few days. Can you imagine three and a half years? This is the Elijah who summons the entire community of faith, the entire community of the saved. Come and meet me on the dusty summit of a mount called Carmel. And when they are assembled, this is the Elijah who cries out a most counter-cultural call. Take a look at this. 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah then came near to all the people. That would be on top of Mount Carmel. And he said, how long will you go limping with two Different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And what did the people say? The people did not answer Him a word. Come on, you saved people. When are you going to decide which God, which culture, which kingdom you belong to? How long are you going to go limping back and forth in this kingdom during the week, in this kingdom on Sabbath, in this kingdom six days, in this kingdom one day, in this kingdom six days, in this kingdom one day? Which kingdom do you belong to? Reminds me of this classified ad that appeared in a local newspaper with its typographical error. Garage sale. Children's toys, washing machine, 19-inch TV, and other household gods. You've got to choose your God, Elijah cries out. Who is your God? What's your culture? Which kingdom do you belong to? Countercultural. Are we? Are, are we? Are we really? By the way, that is precisely Jesus' point in this radical question Jesus asks on the Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at this. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus speaking, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or she will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It is impossible to serve two competing cultures. Can't be done. Cannot be done. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. Which, by the way, is why the Bible's last book ends with this passionate, radical, countercultural call. Take, in fact, I want you to look this one up. You can find the Bible's last book, Revelation. Find it with me, please. Revelation. Find Revelation chapter 18. Will you read this? Revelation chapter 18. You look it up, please. Revelation 18. Pick it up here in verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. And he had great authority And the earth was illuminated by His splendor. And with a mighty voice He shouted, Fallen, fallen is the culture of this earth. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. 
The angel begins to describe the reality of this fallen culture. She has become a home for demons and a hunt for every evil spirit, a hunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Verse 3, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries, the kings of the earth. It is a global culture now. Even Politics itself is drawn in. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then, verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come, my people, come out of that fallen culture. Come out of her, my people, and be ye not partakers of her plagues because this culture is doomed come out of the prevailing but fallen culture come out of that doomed kingdom but I know what you're saying you say come on pastor <laughs> I am not I am not in that doomed kingdom we are not in that doomed culture perhaps not but I wonder if that doomed kingdom and culture are in us Because there is one very destructive but pervasive entree of our fallen culture that I fear has more than a few of us infiltrated. So what in the world are you talking about? I want to share with you. Just appeared this last Tuesday in the Tribune, South Bend Tribune. I want to share a cartoon with you that I think probably introduces it to us well enough. Cartoon. You'll see a, a mother and a father in the background. Shell-shocked dad. Mother has her arm around dad. And mother's holding in her hand a newspaper headline. TV fall lineup. Junior has just walked to the garbage can and thrown in the television. And mother now is saying to shell-shocked dad, Well, you did tell him to take out the trash. Perhaps Junior knows something the people of God have yet to learn. I hope it doesn't come across as homiletical hyperbole when I say that I fear for our community of faith because of the insidious inroads television has made into our saved and remnant midst. Our homes, our psyche. There is no more... Potent purveyor of this world's fallen culture. Promise you, no more than television and its twins. Okay, throw in DVD, throw in VCR, and to boot, throw in the Internet. No more pervasive purveyor of this world's fallen culture. And by the way, come on, the medium is not fallen. Come on, look, look, look around here. We got television cameras. You know why we have these television cameras? Because the medium enables us to go to tens of thousands of people through satellite who are joining us right now and worshiping with us. The medium is not fallen. The medium is rather an extremely insidious purveyor of the values of our fallen culture and morally bankrupt world. The stuff that now pervades and parades as American entertainment is seductively sick. What did this political cartoon... By the way, that was not a preacher. That was a political cartoonist. And what did he call it? Trash. And of God's people, of the young and the old, 
Christ followers, upright worshipers and churchgoers today, have we become marinated in the fallen culture of this lost world through non-critical indulgence of television's nightly and daily fare? Hey, do you know what it means? Do you know what the meaning of this word is, marinated? You have to be a home canner. Anybody can at home anymore? What does it mean to be marinated? Well, it'd be like Harvard Beats. Do you like Harvard Beats? Not bad. Marinated means to be soaked in something until you are finely saturated with it. Until like Harvard Beats, you are so saturated with that vinegar brine that when somebody eats you, all they can taste is that salty, tangy vinegar that oozes from your every pore. That's what it means to be marinated. Have the people of God become marinated in the juices of a fallen culture. Have we? In 1985, a social commentator named Neil Postman wrote a stunning book that became a biting expose of American television. You'll see the book on the screen. Amusing Ourselves to Death. Here's Postman's premise. Television has essentially dumbed down, if I can borrow the words of the late Patrick Moynihan, television has dumbed down every major American activity into entertainment and thus has corrupted our society to the core. Everything is entertainment now. The news is entertainment, hence the ratings wars. Politics has become entertainment. Sports is entertainment. Church and religion have become entertainment with bigger bands, flashier preachers, and showier worship before larger crowds because the crowds and culture demand it. We think. We think. Television has turned our lives into non-stop entertainment. Neil Postman died just a few days ago. After his death... Joel Betts wrote a piece in the October 25 World Magazine that is entitled, Not at All Amusing, playing on Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I want you to read uh, Joel Betts's words. Neil Postman was a master at spotting ironies in life. But even he might have been startled to note that his death at 72 came within hours of the election of Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor of California. Postman, of course, was the author in 1985 of the prescient book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. In it, he alluded in detail to the American public's growing appetite for entertainment in place of serious discourse. To point right now to the media circus that helped propel Mr. Schwarzenegger to his rousing California victory a couple of weeks ago is to belabor, belabor the obvious. It's hard to imagine a grander headlining of Postman's insights than what we've just watched in the California spectacle. Neil Postman has passed from the scene, but the truth of his analysis has never been more painfully clear. Amusing ourselves to death. Come on. I just want to, after, a, after the pressures of life, I want a few pleasures of life. And so at night, just let me disconnect for a few minutes. I don't know what you're saying. Dwight, why are you preaching this to a university crowd? They don't have televisions. You know, I, I went door to door and I was... We had a wonderful time praying, so I can say this without a fault in anybody. There was not a single room that did not have a color television. 
So, I mean, this is about you and me. Amusing ourselves to death. Physical death. That's why they call them couch potatoes. We have have the ascendancy now. We have the ascendancy of heart disease. No activity. Amusing ourselves to death. Intellectual death. Now, I know i got a crowd full of young parents-to-be. And I want to speak specifically now to parents-to-be. Wouldn't you know it? Just this very week... On Tuesday, they came out with a study released by the Kaiser Family Foundation and Children's Digital Media Centers. Dateline, Washington. This is four days ago. Headline, TV may delay reading ability. Subline, if tube on less, more age four to six can read, study says. Okay, here, here we go. Children who live in homes where the television is on most of the time may have trouble learning to read more than other kids, a study says. This probably isn't rocket science. Tuesday's report, based on a survey of parents, also found that kids six months to six years spend about two hours a day watching television, playing video games, or using computers. That's roughly the same amount of time they spend playing outdoors and three times as long as they spend reading or being read to. Whoa! The study by Kaiser, and I just uh, noted that, found, I don't believe this, the study found that one-third of children six and younger have TVs in their bedrooms. One-third? Not your kids, I know, not your kids. To be. And a similar proportion live in homes where a television is on most or all of the time. In those heavy TV households, here it comes, 34% of children ages 4 to 6 can read compared with 56% in homes where the TV is on less often. Now, quoting, not an evangelist, not a preacher, not a pastor, but a pediatric specialist, Dr. Henry Shapiro, Chairman of Developmental and Behavior Pediatrics at the American Academy of Pediatrics. All right, Dr. Shapiro. Watching TV is far inferior to playing with toys, being read to, or playing with adults, or talking with parents, he said. Watching TV without a parent is a junk experience, especially for young children. Amusing ourselves to death. What kind of death are you talking about, postman? I'm talking about physical death. I'm talking about intellectual death. I'll tell you one death he was not talking about. He wasn't talking about spiritual death, but I wonder if we're amusing ourselves to spiritual death as well. Hmm? Is television the killer? Now remember, hold on, hold on, come on, please. Caveat time, time out. The issue is not the medium. We've established that, haven't we? The issue is not the medium, right? Although some would argue with Marshall McLuhan that the medium has become the message. And I think we could get into that whole discussion, but we'll leave it alone. The issue is, what are we being exposed to subtly, subconsciously, not just in entertainment programming, but even in the news and sports programming? What is the subtle subplot? Western secular culture, which naturally permeates television, look, is not so much anti-God, though there's a strong element of that. It's not so much anti-God... It is absent God. Think of the last TV program you watched. The last program you watched. Was God ever introduced in that reality show as a solution? Was he introduced as a political solution? Was he, was he an ethical solution? Was he a moral solution? Was he a social solution? He was not. TV is not anti-God. It is absent God. He's just not there. 
the cultural norm that television sports, television news, television entertainment promulgate is clearly, I'll put it on the screen for you, the promotion of self as the greatest good and God of all. The insidious sexual preoccupation of daytime and primetime television all panders to self. The exploitation of female anatomy at beauty pageants, ditto. It's it's, it's exploiting self. The grasping clamor for material possessions on game shows, clamoring of self. The survival of the fittest or the most beautiful or the most wealthy or the smartest or the quickest of these ad nauseum survivor shows, the same. Self. Survival of the fittest, number one. The gratuitous violence of cop shows appeals to nothing. Not even self. Gratuitous. The pandering celebrity culture of the news and talk shows that destroy the opponent's mentality of professional sports today. I don't care what sports you're talking about. Get him. All of it can be traced back to the hissing deception of Eden's serpent. You will be as God. Number one, you. Just look at the celebrity culture that television bids us worship. Look at those magazine covers. Icons. You know what an icon is? An icon is an idol. Do you think these people ever, hey, come on, don't wave at me, don't clap at me, give it to God, to God be the glory. Even these home run kings that go this and then point when they run the bases. You think that's some great Christian testimony? Are you kidding? Nobody stops the applause. Bring it on. Fallen, vulgar, selfish, ego rules our corrupted culture. And the Creator God has literally been, to use a television word, preempted from our airwaves and our channels. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, when God's people line up night after night to marinate in that what the cartoon called trash, what do we have? What do we have in the end? It's the end that I'm concerned about. Anyone who lives like Martin Luther did with a deep consciousness of the great war between light and darkness, between God and the devil, would have to conclude watching American television today that someone or something is proactively, pervasively co-opting God out of public consciousness. How long? Radical countercultural cry. How long will you go limping Back and forth between cultures. You want to stay with this culture? Worship it. You want this culture? You want God? Stay with Him. And to all of those, because some of your minds are already ahead here, to all of those who are so quick to protest, ah, but come on, Dwight, don't you know we must, we must reach this fallen culture for Jesus? I would respond, of course we do, but we don't have to marinate in it in order to reach it and save it. That's the point. Don't have to marinate in it. And I'm telling you, this has become, it's just, it's just common. It's just common. And some of us believe you have to use that. You have to use it to reach a lost world for Jesus. I remind you what Jesus said on the eve of His own slaughter. 
This is his high priestly prayer. John 17, O Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I have, my prayer is not that you take them out of that world, but that you protect them. Please, protect them from the evil one. Note the, the prepositions in the Greek or the English. Jesus says, in the world, but not of the world. The countercultural call of Christ to you and me. I have sent you into the world, but not to become part of the world. You don't have to marinate in that fallen culture to reach that culture for me. I didn't. John didn't. Paul didn't. You don't have to either. Which is why God cries out at the end of time, come out of her. Just, just come out of her. Come out of her, my people. All right. So let's have a bonfire, huh? Let's have a bonfire right now and toss our 2.5 televisions per Adventist household into that fire. What do you say? Huh? I want to tell you something. For some of you, listen carefully. For some of you, that will be the only successful strategy that is left for the sake of your salvation, withdrawing from the marinating culture of the fallen world, you've lost your ability to control it. You can't control it. Get rid of it. Why? Cut it out. In fact, listen, take Jesus' word for it. Also, Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus said this? If you're having trouble with your television, you remember what He said? If your right eye offends you, what did he say? Put, put, put dark glasses on. Look away for a while. No, no, for some of you, he says, look, this is radical, countercultural. If your right eye, or do you, do you watch with your left eye? Both eyes, okay. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Cut it off. You can't live. You can't live with that eye staring at that ionized eye that stares back at you. You can't, you can't make it. I have friends, by the way, on both coasts who have made that countercultural decision and they have discovered much to their joy that there really is life after television. Whoa! You can live without it! Is that true? Listen, folks, whether you throw it out or radically reduce your exposure to it, I don't see how the John the Baptist generation can spiritually survive marinating in television's fallen culture. In fact, would you like to know what John the Baptist did with his TV? I, f- I found it. John the Baptist had a TV. Do you know what he did with his TV? Watch this. Desire of Ages, speaking of John the Baptist. To John, the solitude of the desert was a welcome escape from society in which suspicion, unbelief, and impurity had become well-nigh all-pervading. Welcome, John, to the third millennium. Isn't that it? There's more. He distrusted his own power to withstand temptation and shrank from constant contact with sin. Read my lips. Television, by and large, offers you constant contact with the sin of a fallen culture. By and large. 
He shrunk back. He said, I can't, I just, I just can't. Read on. And so he distrusted his own power to withstand temptation and shrank from constant contact with sin, lest he should lose, here's the point, lest he should lose the sense of its exceeding sinfulness in solitude by meditation and prayer. He sought to gird up his soul for the life work before him. Although in the wilderness, he was not exempt from temptation, neither are you, neither am I. But so far as possible, here's what he did with his TV. He closed every avenue by which Satan could enter. That's what he did. He said, wait a minute. I just found a door through which Satan can enter. I shall now shut that door. He closed every avenue. Ladies and gentlemen, you know this. Your television not only has an on switch, it has an off switch. And you can turn it off. Why turn it off? Because that's the avenue that the devil is driving his Mack truck into your life through. That's why. And you know when he gets his Mack truck inside my mind, you know what he does? He just puts it on dump and that marinating ooze goes down into every pore of our spiritual being. Close the door. Yeah, but Dwight, he's going to come at me in another way. Of course he will. He is no dummy. Close that other door too. And keep closing the doors till you have the avenues to your soul shut from him. Close the door. Turn your television off. Keep it off if you have to. Say, oh man... Where am I going to get the power to do this? From the place where the John the Baptist countercultural message shafted a radical laser beam. John 1.29. This is where you get the power. Look. Look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at that face of Jesus right there on that screen. Christ alone can take away the sin of a fallen culture. And get this, folks, it's at the cross. Calvary is where the marinating power of a sinful fallen culture is not only challenged, it's broken. It's broken at Calvary. So go to the cross. We shared this last Sabbath talking about the spirit of repentance, didn't we? Go to the cross every morning. Go to Matthew 27. Every day of your life, look long and hard into the face of Jesus. Because the more time you spend gazing into His face, the less time you will desire to gaze into the ionized face of a fallen culture. All right. I'm going to sit down. But before sitting down, I'm going to give you Away, because you're not going to throw your TV away. And so I'm going to give you a way to watch television. Everybody in the dorm, every room in the dorm, every faculty home, every community television, you do this. You be alone with Jesus in the morning, all right? You're alone with Jesus at your apartment. You're alone with Jesus in the morning. Look into His face. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the marination of a fallen culture. And then in the evening, when you come and you need a little bit of time to relax, so you sit down in front of that television. Listen, you're not even going to have to pull out and tape it to your TV or your VCR or your DVD player. You won't have to tape Philippians 4.8. You won't even have to remember it. But here's Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble. This is the great radical countercultural name, Paul. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy in these, think about such things. And so here's what you do. In the evening, in your dorm room or at your home, wherever, your family room, in the evening, just put another chair right beside you. And you have Jesus sit in that chair. Yeah, just have Jesus watch TV with you. This isn't, this isn't difficult. You have Jesus in that chair. And as you're watching now, when a man and a woman or a man and a man crawl under those bed sheets and little is left to your imagination. Here's what you do. Right when that scene comes, you turn over and say, Jesus, how are you enjoying this, Jesus? What, what do you think? Yeah, no, no, you don't have to make up your mind at all. You just ask Jesus. Say, Lord, what do you think about this? Are these your creatures created in your image? Shall we keep it on? You just ask Him. Whatever He tells you, forget the church. The church is not going to tell you what to do. There's no preacher alive who can anyway. You just ask Jesus. That way, when a New York cop or a Miami crook pulls his handgun out to blow, I mean with all the color to boot, to blow the head of that man in front of him and blow that head off just as he's getting ready to pull the trigger, lean over and say, Hey, Jesus, do you want to watch this killing? You made these people? You want to watch it? You say, you're making a joke out of it. No, the joke is, the joke is, we watch it and say, Hey, it doesn't affect me. I'm untouched by the marination of this fallen culture. You are not untouched, my friend. You are saturated. So the next time you're watching, and the entire plot of the movie that you've rented, the entire plot is you know, like a bank heist. It's breaking one of Jesus' Ten Commandments. The whole plot is set around breaking one of the ten. You put it on, have Jesus sit beside you, and then you ask Him, at what point should we turn this off? He'll tell you. He will tell you, and you will know. You see, Jesus also knows that what you behold, you become. So He says, behold, the Scriptures cry out, behold, the Lamb of God. That was Martin Luther's secret. It will be the secret of every university professor who God will use for this reformation that gets ending. It will be the secret for every university student that God longs to use for this final reformation. It will be the secret of every man, woman, and child that is serious about being a part of the John the Baptist generation. Martin Luther knew the truth. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of our fallen culture and frees us from our marinated state. Just look to Jesus. You'll know. You will know every single time what to do. Which is why that old, old chorus tells the truth. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His, His wonderful face. And the things of the fallen culture will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Want to be a part of that John the Baptist generation? He desperately needs you and me. We must together 
Oh, Holy Father, that's what we want more than anything. 486 years later, that's what we want. The Reformation to go on. This countercultural kingdom to grow up. And we wish to be a part of it, this John the Baptist generation. Oh God, we can't talk ourselves into this. It's going to have to take the moving of the mighty Holy Spirit upon all of our minds and all of our hearts to know what we're supposed to do and what He does may not be what she does, but we've got to do something to get out of this marinating culture. And so... Whatever it is that the Spirit is calling us to do today, we corporately, humbly ask that the blood of the Lamb might be upon us and that we might have omnipotence on our side to make the decision we must make for the sake of our souls. Oh Christ, You're the only one who can save us. Locking onto Your face, may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of Your glory and grace. Let all the people say, Amen.